0: chapter four of the coming people this librivox recording is in the public domain the coming people by charles f dole chapter four the divine universe men are quite used to hearing it said that we live in a universe few yet realize what a stupendous statement this is the fact is that long after we have dispossessed demons and wind gods and forces of evil from their hold of the world vague superstitions that survive from the beliefs of early men still haunt our minds. We call this a universe, but it is not obviously so. In the face of the appearances of things, it often looks more like a scene of life and death struggle. In the midst of a hurricane, sweeping away great trees, unroofing houses, deluging the fields, does it not seem as if the men of Homer's time were right? Who thought the unseen powers were at war in the heavens? How shall we easily persuade the doubter that everything is orderly, that there is no actual conflict at all, that one power, not many powers, and this a beneficent power, is behind the whirl of the tempest? Let us go up, however, into one of the new meteorological observatories. Let us imagine that we can take with us the Homeric man, full of his childish fears let us look at the charts and maps and study the reports that have been coming in on the wings of the lightning for many hours from montana from the gulf states from the st lawrence basin let the observers tell us where the storm started days ago what its track has been where its center now is where it is moving and how soon blue skies will follow it let them lecture us a little on the part which the sun plays in starting storms raising winds distributing rains irrigating the earth. The same sun which makes the corn grow moves the clouds. It is only a step to see that all forces are the manifestation of the one force. It is but a step to add that if the sunshine is good, its children, the wind and the lightning, cannot be evil. Let us try as hard as we may please to get away from this logic. The universe is all one. We must admit this. But let us try to deny that it is good. Let us call it indifferent or even mischievous. We cannot consistently do this if we try. Order, law, harmony, truth, unity are all names of good and cannot be translated into terms of insignificance, much less of evil. It is easy and reasonable to trust that the wonderful and beautiful order is beneficent, for this idea fulfills our thought and adds to it the needful element of reason. To say order and unity and then to add evil is to the intellect wholly baffling and inconsequential neither when you have said unity does it make sense to mix good and evil together Their sum does not make unity on the whole and profoundly beneath and behind all appearances the mind quite as truly as the heart of man requires to find good as the sovereign fact the mind demands good as well as unity the mind that discovers the universal order is bound to believe that what we call evil is only incidental to the progress and development of the order as the discords made by the young violinist, far from being outside the kingdom of music, are incidental to his learning the harmony. Thus, as soon as we drive out the demons and make the great nature orderly and one, we are straightway brought face to face with God. God only has left. Whom we cannot drive out and give thought itself any standing room, we are interrupted now with a practical question. Tell us, someone asked, exactly what you mean by a divine universe? What is the divine universe that includes within it Armenia and Crete and Cuba, the slums of toiling cities, the sulphur mines of Sicily, the Siberian prisons? The truth is, although the devil has been banished from his old place in nature. He remains for a while in men's thoughts of human society. We propose to drive him altogether out of the world. If there is no devil or imp in the hurricane, the volcano, the flood, there is no devil in the mine, the factory, the tenement house, and the sultan's palace or the plague spots of Bombay. If the universal order holds good behind and throughout the hurricane and is never broken, so the universal laws hold good in the face of the surviving barbarism of Turkey or Africa. Let us see if this is not so. What does anyone really think who holds that this is not a moral or divine universe? He means, if he means anything, that you cannot quite depend upon the working of the righteous laws in the earth. Sometimes they may work, but other times they fail you. Sometimes it may be well for a man to be just, and at other times it is better to lie and cheat. This is a world, then, of moral expediency, where you must guess your way, but where you cannot trust that the doing of righteousness will be altogether safe. This is as if there were a room in some factory where the workman could not quite depend upon the laws of mechanics. Imps, and not laws, play havoc with the work. Sometimes a direct blow of the hammer will strike the nail, and again the best aimed blow will hit the workman's hand, or smite his face. Sometimes it will be well to work from the pattern, and again it will serve better to use no pattern whatever. The man who throws away his square and plumb line may do as well as if he used them, in this strange workroom of chance. This is what men, in whose minds the superstition of a devil still lurks, say of our world. This is precisely what it comes to whenever one sees no divine universe to believe in. Is it possible to believe in moral chaos? How can anyone soberly believe in the outward universe and not think that the orderly structure proceeds right through and includes with its majestic sovereignty all human things? Is there any area of human life in which the moral laws play fast and loose and leave the man who keeps them to be the sport of the imps and demons? Is there any time when the man who steers by the guesses of expediency will be safe and the man who steers by the stars of principle will go shipwreck? Is it in the room of the home and the affections that the world ceases to be a divine universe and its laws mislead us? Will the man or the woman build a home out of savage lust, out of unfaithfulness, out of envies, jealousies, selfishness? Every taint of animalism or barbarism spoils the home life and poisons the fiber of the affections and friendships. There is no workshop in the world where the mechanical laws hold so surely as the subtle spiritual laws hold in human society. Do you want friends? Do you wish to be loved? Do you desire the joy of a civilized home? Do you care to enter noble human society? By every such question that you try to answer, the world proves itself a divine universe. To the boys on their playground, and even to the savages, the moral universe begins to display itself. Let the boy be true, frank, brave, manly, generous, obliging, and like the young Abraham Lincoln, everyone wants to have his good company. Let friendly Bishop Pattison go to live with the pagan South Sea Islanders, and the universal human nature in them rallies to support the noble man. Let a Lowell or a Sumner visit England, and the most aristocratic society unlocks its doors. Why? Because the only real aristocracy in the world is compacted of virile, courageous, high-minded, and public-spirited characters. Because human society throughout is traversed by the universal ethical laws. Because already in good society, the gentle prevail, and no others are wanted. Because, obviously, the all-round man whom we admire is the just and friendly man, and the women whom we love are the large-hearted women. Who, then, denies that this is the same sort of divine universe and all the ramifications of human society as it is in workshops or meteorological observatories? Perhaps, however, men who are trying to make all the money they can see no signs of an imperative reign of righteous laws in Wall Street. They think that the imps still play about the workshops of trade, bringing honest men to shame. What are the merchants thinking about who talk so? Do they not know that every figure must be exact in every page of the ledger, that orderly system must prevail from the counting room to the factory, that the whole gigantic fabric of modern business rests upon confidence, that every lie, dishonesty, error is waste and somewhere at last has to be reckoned with? Do they not also see that commercial bookkeeping is one grand parable of the nice and accurate working of righteous laws in a realm where no disobedience can ever be covered up? Is it the politician who despairs of the righteous universe or dreams that he can play with its laws? Such a politician does not read history. Nothing in history is more interesting, impressive, or encouraging than to see how, by inexorable justice, every man goes to his own place. Men lightly think that the world worships brains, smartness, popularity. The nation is always trying experiments with cheap material. And slowly learns the lessons of its disappointments the nation always hopes that behind the successful man of the moment use and service will appear to justify his notoriety but the world loves and worships no such man as this or if for a little it is deceived it soon ceases to worship what does the world care today for the old-time despots and conquerors for a dull king george or lewis for the senators and presidents who stood for human slavery the world groans at their names, but it reveres, never so much as today, the martyrs of its liberties, its laws, and its faith. Not Jefferson Davis, but President Lincoln. Not Gates, but Washington. Not Lord North, but Pitt, the friend of freedom. Not Philip of Spain, but William the Silent. Not Herod, but Jesus. Place once the statue on the pedestal of righteousness, and it stands forever. Teach our youth the solemn object lessons of history and they will not dare to go the slippery way of the unfaithful, the cowardly, the selfish, and the traitors. Temptation will hardly be possible to those who have once seen the grand march of right through all the generations. This does not mean that we live in a universe where the experiments of injustice are forbidden. It would not be a moral universe at all if men's hands were tied and they were forced like slaves unwillingly in the way of justice as it is a world where the child can fall and indeed must fall before he can walk, as it is a world where the ill-aimed blow of the hammer spoils the work and necessitates the more skill in the workman, as it is a world full of conditions which, if you break, will straightway narrow the flow of your life, so it is a world where you can do wrong, tell falsehoods, break promises, injure your friends, bring woe and tears to multitudes, crucify your holy ones. I do not find that this large liberty proves the triumph of unrighteousness or the malign powers of a Satan. It proves the contrary by every new experiment. It shows that evil does not work, that cruelty is barbarous and intolerable, that selfishness goes at last to the wall, that the righteous man, though alone, is mightier than the multitude, that, behind the dim unknown, standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. Why then, someone asks, if this is so evident, why does not everyone see it? Because, as I shall show more carefully in the following chapter, the movement is progressive, because it presents itself to our minds as an order of evolution. It is a divine universe in the process of becoming. It is vital and organic. No one pretends that it is a mechanical world, wound up like a clock, so as to keep the true time from the day that the pendulum starts. We have no use for Paley's world, we cannot wonder that men who look for that kind of universe become infidels. There is a strange and cloudy mixture in a vial. It looks worthless. I am tempted to throw it out of the window. But wait! I begin to see at the bottom of the vial the beautiful shape of a crystal. By that token, I know what the obscure mixture is doing. It is depositing crystals. So whenever in the apparent chaos of human life I see the beginnings of the beautiful, orderly, crystalline structure, I know what the universe is doing. I see the structural order of a single righteous life. I see the crystalline structure of a single true home. I see the structural lines traversing business, trades, statecraft, education. Wherever I see the lines of such durable structure, I have no doubts any longer about the universe. The mixture may be still largely obscure. The greater part of it remains in apparent chaos. But I know that it is depositing crystals. The laws of the crystals are working throughout the mass. The prophecy of the crystals is certain from the moment when, out of the seeming chaos, the first perfect and beautiful shape appears. End of chapter 4